0: I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The Irish desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of our republic. And we want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. I wish to talk to you this evening. Welcome to the History of Ireland. Last episode, we introduced the British delegation and briefly looked at the kick-off of the negotiations. Today, we're going to go in-depth into the first two weeks of the talks. Buckle in, this is going to be a mammoth episode. Let's do it. The first main topic of conversation at the negotiations was coastal defence. Historian Gretchen Friedman has this amazing new book about the treaty, and I'm going to steal a lot from it in the next few episodes. As she puts it, English concerns about its vulnerable western flank had dominated Anglo-Irish relations for centuries. And in the opening sessions, Lord George argued that the coast of Ireland is essential to us. Griffith pushed back a little in his quiet way, but was happy to give them some leeway here, saying, if we reach an agreement on the general question, coastal defence issues could be resolved. The general thinking was that Britain would retain control of a certain number of ports in Ireland, and initially they demanded that Ireland would have no navy. But over the course of the sessions they compromised on this issue. But we'll get to that. Next came the issue of free trade, which as we're learning thanks to Brexit is actually a little bit more complicated than you'd think. It was also an important one for Griffith. Historian Colum Kenny puts it like this. Griffith had a keen sense of Ireland's economic needs and pressed to ensure that the treaty secured real financial freedom for the new state. While Michael Laffin writes that a distinguishing feature of Griffith's nationalism was his preoccupation with the economic aspects of Irish independence and his determination that Ireland should be a modern, prosperous state. He imagined an Ireland self-sustaining and thriving with its own goods, free from the trade restrictions that British rule had long held over the Irish. But to protect Irish goods, there was the chance that the Irish might have to tax British goods. The Brits obviously didn't like this all that much and were worried that trade wars between the two countries would just piss everyone off. But trade was something that could be figured out and would never stoke passions as much as, say, Ulster or issues around an oath of allegiance to the Crown. As Griffith himself explained to the poet Ezra Pound of all people when he visited the Irish delegates, I can't move them with a cold thing like economics. So trade was complicated, but not a deal-breaker, and so the delegation moved on to Irish neutrality. In, I think, the second session, Griffith opened, making a case for Ireland's ability to remain neutral in any war Britain might fight. Lloyd George retaliated, saying, Britain's offer was that Ireland should be in the same position as the Dominions. Sending troops would be voluntary, but there'd be no question of neutrality. His reasoning for this was, as he put it, To allow her to be neutral, Ireland that is, would be to repudiate the king's sovereignty. Now, warning, 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 we're veering into dangerous territories. No one wants to talk about oaths or kings or anything like that just yet. And so at this point, Gavin Duffy interrupted, saying, Ireland's neutrality could be guaranteed by the League of Nations and the United Nations and Germany. Basically, his point was, If you don't trust us, trust all the bigger countries that could crush us if we turned against you. This did the job and steered Lloyd George away from oaths, for now, and back to the idea of dominions. He asked, Where are the Irish coming into the community of free nations with the same rights as Canada, Australia, and the other dominions? To which Griffith replied, We cannot enter freely if it's not a free choice. And so they hit a bit of a brick wall. Finally, there was also talk of freeing prisoners, which was brought up by Collins. Here, Lloyd George was a little bit more lenient and it was agreed that it would be discussed in the truce subcommittees. So that was kind of a win, at least. As mentioned last week, Griffith was in good form initially. He wrote to Dev about these opening sessions, saying that the British are anxious for peace and the discussion was amiable and both sides were polite to each other. In fact, he even ended the letter saying, on the whole, we have scored today. But not everyone was pleased. Chamberlain wrote that in those first two sessions there had been, quote, no progress forward or backwards. He wanted things to move quickly, as the longer the talks carried on, as he put it, quote, Opposition to the conference and to our actions is growing among our own people. One issue brewing on the British side among Chamberlain's people was the continuation and the expansion of the Doll courts and the IRA's breaches of the truce. Birkenhead and other Tory highliners were furious that the courts were continuing, seeing them as a direct move against the truce. It also didn't help that the courts and the IRA drills were being heavily publicized in the papers. It was this topic that kicked off the third session on October 13th, with Lloyd George, quote, discharging a volley of accusations about serious breaches of the truce, warning that, Repetition of incidences which had recently taken place would make it very difficult for the British to continue the conference. But the mild-mannered and quiet Griffith was not going to back down. Instead, he pointed towards an incident in which the British broke the truce themselves, taking county council buildings in Sligo, which he described as the occupation of a strategic point. This forced Lloyd George to back down and it was agreed that everything would be discussed in those truce subcommittees. Now, some historians suggest this was a little bit of theatre on Lloyd George's part to keep his Conservatives happy as the talks slowly continued. Griffith wrote to Dev later that night saying we were able to turn the tables on account of the Sligo incident. But he also warned that the whole British diehard element was at work publicly and privately to smash the conference over the ostentatious publicity of the courts. Meanwhile, Collins wrote to the GHQ and instructed them to cease any IRA activities. It's fascinating to see how both the Irish and the British had their diehard elements with which they had to deal with. On both sides, there were people not happy the talks were being carried out at all. And both sides, while dealing with the different viewpoints in the room, also had to have one eye over their shoulder, making sure those not willing to compromise didn't wreck the whole thing. In the end, the next day, on Friday, October 14th, at the fourth session, the Irish delegation agreed that No court shall be held in Ireland otherwise than as before the truce. And that was kind of that put to bed. But in these four sessions, things slowly started getting serious. Lord George, eager to move into substantial topics, finally broached the topic of Ulster. And the Irish were grossly unprepared for this they had been trying to hold off discussing Ulster until Dev provided his instructions on the matter. Why he'd get to do this is anyone's guess. So Griffith basically spent this session buying time and, quote, launched into the traditional Sinn Féin attack on partition. This basically argued that partition was unnatural and was an alien solution to an Irish problem. He, quote, went on to portray the 1920 riots in the North as the work of Belfast politicians and accused the city's industrial heavyweights of fermenting religious strife to prevent concerted action by their employees. Gavin Duffy added in that if England would stand aside, there would be no difficulty. And this is, frankly, hogwash, and grossly underestimated the complicated nature of the situation. What followed was, quote, a long and laborious debate in which Lloyd George passionately argued that it would be unjust and without any kind of precedent for the British to force Ulster Unionists out of Britain and into an Irish state they had no wish to be a part of. Remember, Ulster Unionists were descendants of British settlers who had been living in Northern Ireland for centuries. They rightly see themselves as uniquely Irish, but uniquely British at the same time. It'd be like telling Texans they were no longer American and expecting them to be happy about it. Eventually, the Irish agreed, saying they would not coerce Ulster, while Lloyd George conceded that, quote, a majority in Tyrone and Fermanagh were against partition. He then mentioned, quote, that nationalist politicians in 1914 had accepted a crude division of the six counties as being preferable to setting up a boundary commission. If they were okay with it, why aren't you guys, was the general thinking. The historian Freeman writes that this seems to be the first time that a boundary commission is mentioned in the negotiations. And take note, because that will be important. She goes on to write about Collins's response to Lord George, saying, Intriguingly and almost as if musing out loud, Collins retorted that the Ulster question would be settled by a plan for a boundary commission or for local option or whatever you may call it. But added that the Irish decision not to use force against Ulster had little to do with military considerations. Rather, it was because victory over the northeast would not settle the matter. Despite this bit of bluster, the fourth session ended pretty well. Though it should be said, Chamberlain pleaded with the Irish delegates not to push too far. He said, you are not aware of the risks we are taking with our whole political future. While hinting at the idea that, well, he and Lloyd George would be a lot easier to deal with than whoever came after them. Remember, Chamberlain was very worried about keeping his Tories in line. Meanwhile, Lloyd George was unhappy and worried that the whole thing would collapse at any moment. He wrote that the Irish delegates were impossible people. They came to the point but could not make decisions. Which is kind of fair as they were hamstrung by Dev back in Dublin. At this point, they were trying to stick very closely to the orders Dev had given them. It was difficult to be making decisions in the room. And with that, the negotiations broke up for the weekend. I'm going to pause here for a quick ad break. I know, not something we usually do, but this is a long episode. And it'll give ye a little bit of a breather and me a little bit more money. So, (laughs) win-win. Be back in a jiffy. With the first week done and dusted, it's interesting to take stock of what the different delegates thought of each other. Lord George was not all that impressed by Griffith, but he liked Collins, saying, Griffith had no power of expression and was clever but incoherent, while Collins was undoubtedly a considerable person. On the other hand, we have Neville MacReady, who saw it the other way around. We've already discussed what he thought of Collins, a quote, great disappointment, but he was quite impressed by Griffith, saying, He was a strong, silent man. Griffith, meanwhile, seemed quite taken by Lord George, saying he was a remarkable, suave and astute man. Interestingly, Churchill described sitting down with the Irish, who he'd been fighting with for so long, as not without its shock. But the newspapers reported that he and Collins enjoyed each other's company and that Churchill had listened with interest to Collins' adventures. Who knows if that's true or just more Collins mythologizing? Collins, for his part, as we mentioned, was not enjoying the talks. He wrote home complaining of wakeful nights and feeling in a queer mood, and of being a bit unstrung. Despite this, his good humour was often reported upon. As mentioned, MacReady didn't enjoy his flippant nature, but Lloyd George, well, he seemed to. Saying, Collins has a highly cultivated sense of humour. There's one quote of Collins's that I love. He told a writer that when I first shook hands with Lloyd George there was still in existence the Dublin Castle reward of £10,000 for my capture, dead or alive. Subsequently, I reminded the British Prime Minister of this incongruous state of affairs. But that did not happen until I discovered he knew how to laugh. It's also said Collins and Lord Birkenhead got on like a house on fire. The two of them quickly became friends and seemed to genuinely enjoy each other's company. As a portrait artist who painted each of the delegates put it, many a morning before the Downing Street meetings, Collins would be seen hurrying to meet Birkenhead. A big reason for this friendship was that the two men were remarkably similar. They were both tall and athletic, and incredibly smart, with Friedman saying, the ability to rapidly master complex information was recognised as a defining attribute of both. In fact, Collins lavished Birkenhead with praise in his own private notes, saying, If all the delegation had Birkenhead's capacity for clear thinking, capacity for work and getting ahead, things would be much easier. Lawyer, but with a great difference. Concise, clearness of ideas is a great advantage. Refuses to be drowned by the might of others. A good man. Collins and Birkenhead also had, quote, a flair for bawdy humour and a fondness for drink. Sadly, Friedman also argues that one of the reasons the two men liked each other was that they were both fairly sexist. With neither Collins or Birkenhead, quote, promoting the participation of women in public life. Birkenhead was against giving women the vote, while Collins, quote, looked upon female activists as the servant class of the revolution. As someone who likes Collins, this isn't great to hear, but you have to take the good with the bad and remember he was not a saint. But I digress. Finally, it should be said that all sides really didn't like Erskine Childers. Remember, he had been sent over by Dev to kind of keep Griffith and Collins in check. But Griffith saw him as an Englishman who can't be trusted, while the English saw him as a traitor who'd gone over to the other side. It's just important to remember this because Childers was one of Dev's few points of contact and truly loyal people over there in the delegation. Now, over the weekend, between the first week of negotiations and the second, the Irish had received access to classified British military documents that had been written at the beginning of the month and discussed how best to hunt down the IRA at, quote, the first sign of the termination of the truce. This meant that Griffith, Collins and the plenipotentiaries arrived into the 5th Plenary Session on Monday the 17th just a little bit miffed. Griffith read excerpts from the report, while Lord George handed it to Worthington Evans, one of his cabinet members. Evans argued that it was just a contingency plan, to which Collins replied, We know, you can't issue these documents without my knowledge. Collins wasn't going to throw away the chance to remind the British that he had completely and utterly infiltrated the British Secret Service. He then continued, arguing that he'd even been followed at mass by some men demanding that Lloyd George take his safety seriously. This was all a bit of bluster, though, and bluster which didn't really sway Lloyd George. He simply ignored the accusations and said that these matters make me anxious about the prolongation of the negotiations. Griffiths replied that yes, no doubt, an early decision would be the best thing. With the outburst Effectively going nowhere, the negotiations moved back to the discussion of Ulster. Over the weekend, Dev had finally sent his Ulster Clause. But, unsurprisingly, we know Dev, these were described as, quote, torturous and convoluted. And Griffiths was basically unable to use them. Instead, he continued with his stance from the previous Friday, saying that those in the six counties should be allowed to choose freely whether they would be in North or South. Lord George countered saying that all of Ulster, i.e. the nine counties, should be allowed to vote. Lord George knew this is the last thing Griffith or the Irish wanted. It was just too risky. Instead, Griffith wanted to ensure Northern Ireland was as small as possible and therefore untenable in the long term. It was a bit of a bluff, though, on Lloyd George's part, as the Unionists would never agree to this either. They didn't want those three extra non-Protestant majority counties. So there was no real movement or breakthrough on either side. And at the end of the debate, Lloyd George passed a note to his assistant, Tom Jones, saying, this is going to wreck settlement. And so the fifth plenary session ended without any ground being made. But then things start getting interesting. The next big development in talks was a snafu involving a series of letters between Pope Benedict XV, King George and Amon de Valera. You see, King George had responded to a papal message in which he spoke about his hope the success of the negotiations, which seems pretty harmless, right? Except Dev didn't see it like that and had a few issues with the king's choice of words. On Thursday, October 20th, he wrote to the Pope saying, The king's language might mislead the uninformed into believing that the troubles are in Ireland, or that the people of Ireland owe allegiance to the British king. The trouble is between Ireland and Britain and its source is that the rulers who by brutal force have endeavoured to rob the Irish people of the liberty which is their natural right and their ancient heritage. This was, how will we say, mm, this was unhelpful. It was also unfortunately timed. The next morning in Hamburg the British found a ship, quote, laden with weapons and bound for Ireland, as well as explosives in a house up in the north of England. There were even reports of Collins drunkenly visiting Irish prisoners, handing out cigarettes and, quote, boasting about all the loyal people he has shot. This meant that if the Irish had arrived at the fifth plenary session Miffed, well, Lord George arrived at the sixth session on October 21st, well and truly pissed. But, always a slippery operator, he came out of the gates carefully, opening the sessions with a question. I wonder, Mr. Griffith, have you any preliminary questions which you would be anxious to raise before we proceed with business? Now, the Irish knew that Dev's letter would have gone down like a lead balloon and decided the best defence was a good offence. And so went into the meeting, all guns blazing, bringing back up the winning topic of the Sligo Council buildings. Eamon Duggan argued that the British had still failed to evacuate the buildings. This was unacceptable. Lloyd George was not phased and simply said, we will look into that. He then apologised for the quote two or three preliminary questions he had of the gravest character. Before launching into a full-throated attack on the Irish, he declared that there was a serious conspiracy in Germany for the accumulation of bombs and other destructive weapons, and it is clearly evident that this action was done in concert with your people. He continued, moving on to de Valera's ill-conceived message to the Pope, saying, The telegram deals with the very issues in controversy. It is challenging, defiant, and if I may say so, ill-conditioned. It will make our task almost impossible. We must know whether allegiance to the king is to be finally repudiated by you, whether the connecting link of the crown is to be snapped. He then, quote, blasted the Irish for submitting a complaint regarding the non-observance of the truce in Sligo, arguing that it was a very small matter in the grand schemes of things. He finally ended his tirade stating, we must know without delay our exact position. If we do not, these sittings cannot be prolonged. So yeah. It was a hell of a whipping the Irish got. But Griffiths dealt with it as best he could. He believed that Dev's telegram was, quote, a grave mistake. And later said that it totally changed the negotiations from a, quote, atmosphere of benevolent inquiry and mutual instruction to one of blunt ultimatum. But in the moment, he was forced to defend Dev's position or the Irish would appear weak and fractured. He argued that Dev only stated facts, as the troubles were not between Irishmen, but between Ireland and Great Britain. This view conveniently ignored all the religious conflict that had occurred in Northern Ireland, but anyway. Though defending Dev, Griffith knew he was in a precarious position, and offered a compromise on trade and defence, saying... I do not read these as insolvable. He was grasping at anything that could lower the temperature in the room and bring the talks back to a tone that was more conducive to negotiations. Meanwhile, Collins and Churchill tussled over neutrality. Collins argued that neutrality would actually be a great means of providing protection for Britain, as Ireland would never get pulled into a war but Churchill was having none of it. He argued that, quote, the position of neutrality would have been a great difficulty to us in the last war. We must consider that there might be ill will in Ireland. Ill will in Ireland? Towards Churchill and the British? Nah! Why would you worry about that? It's interesting. Churchill was worried about two things. He was worried about Ireland turning on Britain and siding with the Germans, which had almost happened in 1916. But some also theorize that Churchill and the British were worried about Irish ports because of the Americans. They wanted to be prepared for the slim chance that America might invade Britain, in which case control of the Irish coast would be vital. Now, this sounds crazy. Britain and America were long-held allies. But I guess when you're Churchill and you're dealing with your country's borders, you have to think about all eventualities and then there was another issue with neutrality that Chamberlain jumped in with neutrality would quote mean that you would be outside the empire which was really kind of a no-go for Chamberlain and his Tories even though it kind of was what Dev was getting at with his idea of external association but that it's still not been adequately explained to the Irish delegation let alone the British Whew the Irish were being bombarded from all sides. Collins tried to spin the meeting towards dominion status and its ambiguous nature. He quoted from a Canadian lobby group who argued that the British Empire was becoming, quote, a partnership between nations, free and equal, saying, I put it to you, Mr. Lloyd George, that the lines in which we are going are very much like those lines. Griffith then doubled down, saying the British were offering an inferior dominion status as Ireland wouldn't be allowed to build its navy. Then, suddenly, instead of giving a response to any of these ideas, the British decided they'd had enough and they left the room to, quote, confer privately. Ten or fifteen minutes later, they came back with an ultimatum they put it to the Irish delegates that they had to have an answer on whether or not they'd accept a Pledge of Allegiance, where they stood regarding membership of the Empire, and what they thought of naval defences. And they would need to have an answer on all of these by the following Monday, otherwise talks were finished. Lord George argued that the British government could no longer waste time in conferences which would lead to no result. Griffith simply replied, saying, If this conference breaks down, we will have to fight. And if we have to fight, we have to prepare. Things were falling apart. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. You can also support the show, by merch, and get in touch all through our website, thehistoryofireland.com. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole. Additional research and fact-checking by Robert Babington, music by Liam Doyle, and additional help from assistant producer, Aoife Murphy.